everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for this exceptional interview with author, editor, and publisher Seamus King. Why would authors want to write holiday books? What ideas can blossom into holiday works? And why do readers seem to so interested in these books? Get ready for another episode full of information, laughter, and new ideas for readers and authors. The winner of our first ever Writing Works Wonders contest was Carol McKay. And we will be asking her to read her entry in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to my fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Hi, Kathy. (laughs) I have a fabulous co-host, too. Hi, everybody. We're so glad to be here with you guys today. As always, thank you for being here with us. And... Yes, we had so many talented contributors to our contest for Writing Works Wonders. It was 52 words, no more, no less. We had certain criteria. We had four judges who did not know who wrote what story, poem, etc. And we got it down to 12 people. And then we got it down to three. First place is our Carol Mackey. Honorable mention to... Second, Natalie Watkins. And third was Rebecca Valadares. Carol, are you ready? Are you there with us? I am, and thank you so much for the honor. We'll read my poem. Is it new beginnings or new intentions? New beginnings so daunting. Blank pages to fill, pictures to paint, equipment to get. So much to learn. New intention, that's different. Changing old habit to new. What I eat, being late, spending less. Whichever new phrase I may choose or I prefer requires work. Oh, damn. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. That was a wonderful entry on the theme of new beginnings. Well-deserved. I'm so pleased to introduce to all of you our guest, author, editor, and publisher, Seamus King. And I have just a brief bio to share with you about him. A very interesting character. As an author of fantasy fiction, Seamus King has published six books and edited many volumes. He's co-founder of Jazz House Publications and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Better Words Editing Services. Seamus can't remember not writing, but remembers writing series sequels when he was seven years old. He started his formal editing training as a research assistant and editing nonfiction articles, moving to books and then on to fiction. Seamus says he's been fighting dragons and foul knights in his dreams and imagination since before he can remember. He grew up on Tolkien, Alexander, and Lewis, and will always be grateful for them opening the doors to faraway places in his mind. In his spare time, 
Seamus enjoys the Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA, as well as honoring the ancient and time-honored tradition of mushing text-based role-playing games. He grew up in the mountains of New England, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, and now lives in the beautiful Smoky Mountains of Tennessee with his wife and daughter. I know this will be an exciting and inspiring show today. Cheryl? Seamus, we are so glad you're here with us today. Welcome. Hello, Cheryl. It's, it's nice to be here. Seamus, you have an impressive bio. You have been slaying dragons since you were very young. How has your writing evolved throughout the years? That's a great first question. As was said in the bio, I've been writing for as long as I can remember from Star Wars fanfics, as we'd call them now, before I was even 10, to my own projects and unique settings um, more recently. I think my writing has developed along the lines of depth. I have learned a great deal about how to indicate great depth in your writing while revealing perhaps less of it, the iceberg theory of Hemingway that there's not much of the iceberg seen above the water, but there's an immensity beneath. But the immensity beneath informs the bit above the water so that it seems more fully realized and real. That is a lesson that I've taken to heart, as well as lessons on brevity that you can accomplish a great deal more description by choosing your words carefully and specifically and using a six-word sentence rather than a 20-word sentence. Wow. Thank you for that description. It's been a while since I've heard that, and that's powerful. Thank you. And what types of books do you enjoy writing the most? Uh, I've mostly been involved with genre writing some science fiction, and a great deal of fantasy. It fits my imagination. As I mentioned in the bio, I grew up reading J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and Lloyd Alexander, and that sort of fantastical world has always appealed to me. Combined with a love of just creating settings and figuring out what has gone before and what the different peoples are like, I'm able to combine those two things and have a great time while I'm doing what I'm doing. That's so important when we love what we're doing. Seamus, your books have such a broad appeal because you cross religious and cultural practices. How did you come up with such a brilliant idea? It's something that I've always been into as I study world cultures. And obviously this story takes place on a place that's not Earth. But in order to keep things from being too alien, something beyond people's experience, I look at a variety of cultures and do my best to do a sort of synthesis that touches on the emotions and feelings that everybody can recognize from their own experiences with family traditions, but isn't specifically anything. So as to not pigeonhole into a specific culture or religion's expectations and make everybody feel connected through the emotions. Seamus, I love your dedications. They're personalized and very special. Would you tell everyone about them? 
I was working on some editing on Mistletoe and Snow, actually, about this time or a little bit earlier last year. Goodness, it's hard to believe it was just last year. And my daughter looked up at me and said, Daddy, have you ever written a book for me? <laughs> and I looked at the timeline, realized I had about a month, month and a half. And I looked at her and said, no, sweetheart, but I will. And I took it as a personal challenge to try to get a whole children's novel produced in that time. Um, and so the first part of the dedication is for her. And it's an important idea I want her to know. And this is one of the themes of the book, that things might get really dark. But dawn always comes after night and all winters end. The other person is a friend of mine who spends his holiday season fantastically busy dressing up as Santa Claus and listening to what children want. He hasn't been able to do as much of it the past year or two because, of course, pandemic. He has developed a wonderful strategy of doing it digitally through Zoom meetings just like this. But I have seen him bring so many tears to young people, and he does it with such love. He does it pro bono all the time, just bring children a good Christmas. And it means so much to me and them to see him do it. Yes. Thank you for being here, Seamus. I want to mention to folks that Seamus is my editor, and he has been for many, many years. I've considered him a fantastic writer, and he's even a great editor and very supportive and guiding me in my work. And I want to mention, talk about that a little later, but I want to return to Midwinter's Gifts for a minute. As I was re-listening to it last night, because Alice shared with us that we could get it on Alexa and Echo, I was reminded of the very sweet relationship between Meadow Lily and her father. And that's articulated throughout the story. I really appreciated your descriptions your word choices, the images that flew through the air to me, even through Lady A. But also there was woven in there those deep messages that, that you were talking about. Some of those authors you've mentioned, have they been your model in how you tried to do that with this particular book? Oh, very much. All three of those authors, and specifically Lewis and Tolkien did a fantastic job of weaving their personal beliefs and what they felt like was important through their stories. And it's everywhere if you look through Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, making a long, impossible journey without hope. It seemed, and so much else, particularly in the later part of The Lord of the Rings, seemed drawn from Tolkien's experience in the trenches of World War I and the need to find that hope, even when things are dour and hopeless. Lewis's Christianity is incredibly apparent in all the Chronicles of Narnia, and you can see the love that he has for it and what it brings him. Alexander took a slightly different tack, but inspired sort of the ways I write stories. His Predaean Chronicles is basically a retelling and reinterpretation of Welsh folklore and legend, and you can see that all woven into a world that's entirely his own, but the motifs and the characters are recognizable if you just turn your head a little bit. So all three of them have had a major influence on how I try to write. That's terrific. And it's very apparent because I was 
reminded subtly of C.S. Lewis as I was listening to the book again last night and this morning. Uh, it's only three hours long for our listeners to know. I was reminded of C.S. Lewis because I was enjoying it as an adult, but I could tell that it was very much written at a level that a mature 10, 11 year old could comprehend and appreciate and very much enjoy the adventure and the, the family emphasis and the heroine in it as well. And I have to say, I appreciate that it was a heroine in it as well. You know, not just a, a little boy that is modeled with the father and slaying the wolves in the dark of the cold in the, the winter. Do you have thoughts about the appeal of holiday books? Why do you think readers seem interested in these books, Seamus? Oh, I think that's sweet. We see that everywhere in the holiday season. People have such a drive to touch their traditions and touch how it makes them feel. You see it in holiday movies. You see it even in commercials. It's everywhere. It's sort of an encouraged mass emotion and fondness that's, I don't want to say pushed on us, but we all participate in at this time of year. And holiday books just feed into that. You think of The Christmas Carol and how we're drawn back to that same story every year in a thousand different iterations, but it's the same story and it makes us remember the holidays that have come before and ties them all back to this moment when you're reading it now. And I think that appeals to all readers who enjoy the holidays because it makes them feel warm and familiar. And in this time of year, I think that's what people are really after. Very, very good point. Very good point. I've seen other authors, like um, I was thinking about this this week, Patrick Taylor with The Irish Country Doctor. And lately I'm on a binge on Reese Bowen, who does Molly Murphy series and the, the Royal Spiness series. She's done dozens of books. They cast several of their series books in the holiday season. So they continue the life of their characters and, and pick up the holiday seasons and you enjoy the holidays with their characters in those. So that's certainly one approach. But how might authors approach writing holiday books in other formats? You've done two very different approaches you've been involved in. That's a good question. And I think the first place every author has to start is with what the holidays mean to them, how they make them feel. Some of them might have a hard time with the holidays, rough experiences or missing their families. But, you know, there are readers going through that too. And they can reach out and experience that and feel that through the characters. Writing for the holidays is all about feelings. So the place that you have to start is with how they make you feel. And from that, it's an easy step to put that feeling in the hands of at least one of your protagonists and figure out what you have to do or what they would have to go through for them to feel some of that same way. And from there, the story just sort of tells itself with a, okay, if this is happening here, what should happen after? Or what has led to them feeling this way? And you build in either direction from that emotion. Very good. Very good. And I've heard you talk about character sketches. What are character sketches and how do you use them? Well, character sketches, to sum up, are simply a list of details about your characters. 
I'm looking at one, a template is provided in the writing program Scrivener. And it has things like the character name, how old they are, where they are, place for their role in the story, their goals, physical descriptions, and things like habits and mannerisms or internal and external conflicts. And that becomes really, really handy because as you fill it out, you start to get a feeling for your characters more and it becomes a handy place to store details. As if, say, I write Meadow Lily having blue eyes in the first chapter. Well, if I come to describing her eyes 90 pages later, I might be so in the midst of writing that I can't remember whether they're blue, green, or brown. So I can go and check that detail. Very good. Yeah. It's a, a quick way to keep track of the details so that there's a consistency in your work. I just want to move over quickly to the editing role. You've had a lot of experience editing fiction and nonfiction across your career. You've been invaluable to me. Many of us know the value of editors. They provide a fresh, outside, relevant, and professional review of your work, but then also a professional editing is indispensable to improve our work before we submit it. What are some of the types of services that editors can provide new and experienced authors? In this case, I want to cover three types. Developmental edits, line edits, and copy edits slash proofreading. The developmental edits are exactly what they sound like. They go on relatively early in your production. They look at scenes that don't work and why. They look at scenes that do work. They help you develop ideas or tell you what ideas aren't developed. It really gives you a place to look at your already drafted work and make changes that help the story flow better, that makes sense. That you might miss if you're trying to do it yourself because you know what's in your head about the story. The editor can only see what's on the page. So they, they get to help you translate what's in your mind to the page by showing you what's missing. The next one is line edits, which as it sounds goes line by line through your piece. It's long and intensive, but it's very important as it goes for word flow and rhythm and some proofreading and edits, but it's making sure your sentences make sense. It's making sure that you don't go through a whole paragraph with a character talking, but not doing anything else to avoid just a block of dialogue. It's that sort of very important nuts and bolts that much like developmental edits are absolutely important to a cohesive work. The final bit, copy editing and proofreading, which is what I started doing with you all those years ago, is just looking for errors. It looks for grammar errors, it looks for spelling errors, it looks for punctuation errors. If you're doing it for nonfiction, it's making sure that all your references have citations and all your citations have references in the work that belong to them. This process takes place last because both developmental edits and the line edits will have changed things. And I have seen more errors and typos appear in books then we're even there to begin with, because when you're making the minor edits, 
things change. So you might have a fragment of a sentence from three edits ago sitting in there that doesn't make any sense. You might have a sentence that doesn't end like the way you wanted it to, and the words are different. So the subject verb agreement is off. Then you hit a final proofreading after that, and those two things are together, and it's just to catch things you might have missed. The more editors you get looking at something, if you can manage it, the better it looks. The statistics that are given us by Random House, I believe, has it listed that each editor will catch approximately 80% of the errors in there. So your first editor gets 80%, but that's still 20% of the typos are still there. The next editor comes through and they find 80% of the errors that are still left. So that leaves you with only about 4% of the errors that you started with. And if you can get further, those numbers obviously scale down and down and down. It's invaluable help. Absolutely. Yes. It, I always feel it's impossible to get rid of all the errors, but can we nail as many as possible before we get to publication? It's just an infinite process when you're dealing with especially 300 page books like I used to be. A lot of people think that they can't possibly afford a professional editor. Can you give us an idea of how your team provides services, how they deal with people that are from our community and if they mention they're from Writing Works Wonders, how they might be able to address the cost? Well, the first thing most editors will do, I know that Jazz House certainly does, is we have a scale of prices that goes down per word the longer your piece is. So while just throwing a number out there, they might edit a 20-page story for five cents a word. At 50 pages, they'll drop that to four cents a word. So it scales so that your huge projects aren't backbreaking and also offer different packages. Like say you're running low, you might get a proofreading package, but not the other edits for a discount price. And many of us are willing to talk with people like visually challenged authors to try to find a way to provide the services they need. Editors, particularly freelance editors, want to work. Authors want to have their material published. Every contract is different and tailored to the needs of both parties. So if you don't think you can afford one, talk to somebody. If they can't do what you need, they probably know somebody who can. Very good. I think that's important for authors to know at whatever level they are in their writing career that this is tremendous support and it doesn't have to be, as you said, backbreaking and financially, it can be affordable. You just need to keep asking to find the people that are within your market so that your best possible work can be put out there publicly with that. That's a relevant point. I want to jump in with there. You said yep. within your market, that is actually hugely important. As I'm sure mm -hmm. you're aware, different markets have different conventions how you write for a published academic journal is different than you might write for maybe a dissertation. It's certainly different than you might write for a science fiction piece, which is different than you might get for a more traditional or modern literature piece. If you can find an editor that does your genre, you will do very well. Great point. Great point. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, just a couple more questions and then we'll go to Q&A with everybody. 
I am so excited you're here, Seamus. Thank you for all this information. Can you tell us a little bit about what Jazz House Publications offers their authors? Well, initially, and what we've done a lot, is Jazz House Publications has focused on pulling out authors that come from underserved communities. We've had a anthology that focuses on women authors of a certain age and beyond because their voices are often lost. That was Crone Rising. We've had a publication that focuses primarily on the writings of people in the LGBT community. And that's just something we focus on because mm-hmm. people from underrepresented groups are simply that. The majority of writers are overwhelmingly white and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are so many voices out there from minority cultures, from people who have been underserved and underrepresented and perhaps forgotten that need to get out there. You shouldn't be limited by where you come from in your ability to get your voice out there. And that's something that we've really, really focused on, as well as giving younger, newer authors. And by younger, I simply mean new to publishing and writing, a chance to get heard and get seen. At this point, most of our publications are on hold as we are in a process of transition, but we can still be contacted for editing packages. And I'd love to talk with you. That's great, Seamus. Thank you. And we'll ask you this again at the end, but would you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you at Jazz House Publications and your editing services? Most all the contact information they might need, they could find at www.jazzhousepublications.com and even more specifically, slash editing dash services. There's lots of information there about what we do. And there's contact information to send us an email and we'll do whatever we can to help you get the editing you need. And at this point, we can probably also walk you through the process of self-publishing on Amazon, both with eBooks and with traditional paperbacks. That's great. Thank you. I want to just touch very briefly on you were part of an author clinic that we talked about social media, one of our prior podcasts. And how does your team use social media to promote your authors or engage with authors? And what do you find most valuable? The the most valuable part about it is what you just mentioned with engagement. That is, we make posts about new publications we have coming up. We make posts about little writing tips. We post about things happening in the writing community. But most importantly is across a number of platforms, We interact with our authors or new authors we haven't worked yet. We comment on their tweets or their Instagram posts and talk about what they need, sometimes just telling them they're doing a great job if they're publishing about their writing. But we are present in the community and we're interacting with authors. And I think that does more than anything else for helping to make us a trusted name and somebody people know they can work with and will work with them because they know us. Thank you. Anybody has any questions for Seamus, please feel free to raise your hand and Chanel will call on you. Thank you. First up, we have Calandra. 
Do you like to write gospel books? My first love is writing fantasy books. The pleasure I get out of creating my own world and putting characters into it to see how they interact is a great joy for me because I feel like it touches onto the authors I admire most. I know a number of authors that work with gospel books and books tied to various religions, and they get a lot of joy out of sharing their beliefs and their faith through fiction as well. Yeah, I, I do enjoy really writing fantasy books. Often there's an element of mystery to them just as the plot unfolds because that adds a bit of suspense and moves the story along. I'm really, really driven by writing characters and getting into what their choices might be when faced with various dilemmas. Carol Mackey. Thank you. Thank you. Great hearing all of this. I love this. What is your writing process? Um, what's your discipline? Also, you mentioned the editing. What I found with find with my work is that I don't always send them the poem or whatever to the same people. I'll think, oh, I wrote this. I think I'll send this to so-and-so to take a look at and get a response. Does that make sense? And do you does that happen in the editing quote-unquote world? Thank you. Well, go to that last question first. And yes, it absolutely does. And it's an excellent process. Getting your work in front of as many eyes as possible can reveal things that you missed yourself. If you send it to one person, they might be, say, Jewish and talk to you like, hey, this here is kind of treading on sensitive ground for me. And you might want to think about that. You might have another person that says, well, this passage here, I don't really understand it. What are you getting? And the most important thing that you can remember when talking with disparate people is listen to them. If you might have meant something with a paragraph, but they don't understand what you meant, you need to fix it because you only know, and I mentioned this earlier, you know what's in your head and what you meant to write and how you meant it to come across. But that is different than what your audience experiences. You can have the best intentions in the world, but if you don't get the message across, then you're not communicating effectively as an author. And this is something I struggle with myself, is we have to get past our ego with writing and (laughs) knowing what we put on the page to recognize that if the reader doesn't get it, then what we're doing didn't work, no matter what we intended. Mm -hmm. The process is also, um, and each writer has their own. I tend to start with an idea of a scene, maybe a couple characters, and get them started to see what happens. Just without much thoughts of a plot yet, maybe a vague idea, but nothing firm. And as the scenes go on, I add more and more detail to what I'm thinking about as a plot. I start to add in those character details and what they're like and what their personality is as the characters themselves tell me. Sometimes if I don't know the plot, I put two or three characters in a room and have and start doing dialogue and they'll tell me about the plot. Clearly, I, I'm very character driven in how I write. As far as discipline, it's just you got to write every day, preferably at the same time, but write every day, even if it's just a little. That gets those wheels turning in your head and it sort of keeps you with it. And as a friend of mine puts it more or less Motivation is great for starting. Discipline is what finishes projects. Next up, we have Alice. Thank you. 
I love the quote that you just mentioned, having been a teacher of essay writing and so forth. I greatly believe in that wonderful quotation that you shared with us, but I want to compliment you on your writing of a description, and also you're creating such very strong women and young girl characters. And with that wonderful writing of description in mind, I wondered as I listened to your book, if you are a bow and arrow sportsman or a bow and arrow hunter, and also if you have encountered a wolf in the wild, because your description was just so fascinating. I have picked up a bow once or twice myself. My grandfather was a great hunter, and I learned some from him. I have a great deal of friends who are far more into archery than I am, and I've observed them at ranges and in competitions, and I've talked with them about how they do it, down to the mechanics of how they hold their hand or how they draw their bow. I'm sure you're familiar with, as all authors, we we research relentlessly to learn more about what, what we're writing, to create an authentic feel. I haven't encountered any wolves in the wild personally, but I've run into a few wild animals, and I know how canines behave. I can't speak that that I'm writing exactly how they respond. But then again, I'm not strictly writing wolves either. There's something else going on there in the story that I think becomes evident as it unfolds. And I write what I can and read as much as I can about what encounters have been like. And sometimes that has to sub for my own experience because I'm in no hurry to encounter a wolf in the wild. Okay, next up we have Pamela Johnson. Hello, how are you doing? I love your approach to editing and how you interact with authors. And one of my questions is, um, uh, what's the most popular genre you have that's sent to you? Like, do you take plays, poets, um, poems, and all the, uh, nonfiction? What's the most popular? And uh, and also, while you were speaking, how do you get in depth with your uh, with your characters? Thank you. Well. To address your last question first, getting in-depth with your characters is just writing them, letting them talk. If you have people, you listen to how they talk. You you get words on page and you interact with the characters. When I've had trouble, I've even written scenes for them that aren't going to exist anywhere in the story. I just want to see how they interact and how they talk. Truth comes out when you're typing, and the characters will tell you what they're like. The earlier question, um, can you repeat it for me? Oh, the yeah. The jo- most popular genre? So far, fiction-wise, our most popular genre has been horror. We've recently done a anthology on horror stories themed around the deep ocean. We've done one that's horror stories involving Victorian era romances, just that sort of thing. People seem to really, really like that. Or at least the people who buy anthologies of short stories. And one of my favorites is what we've been doing with underrepresented voices. That's been sort of creative nonfiction. That is to say, not an essay, not a article talking about animals of the deep blue sea, but 
in this case, it's often with Crone Rising, stories from women over 40 and what they've experienced along their lives, sharing their roads. I think it touches the community that it's writing about. People can see themselves in what they're reading and sometimes discover that they're not so alone in what they've gone through. Please. Next up, we have Marlene Massat. Marlene? Thank you. Do you have any advice or tips on world building? Yes, I do, actually. From the smallest zone to the biggest, write and figure out as much as you can. Let's start with what you like. If you are fascinated by a specific culture or fascinated by cultures in general, work on the cultures in your world. If you're using a world you're familiar with, like Earth or even specifically like New York City, you're still doing world building even if it exists because you're talking about the streets that people are on, which may or may not exist. You talk about the community of people around them. The community of people around a character is also an important part of world building. Anything that's part of their environment is world building as you write it. And just do your research. If you're setting it in New York City, make sure that you know about New York City. It's easy to research all of that down to street names and what different intersections look like. You have access to this at your fingers, the internet as it exists today. Use it. Seamus, could you please tell us one more time uh, so everyone can will know how to reach you and Jazz House Publishing and your editing service? I can usually be reached via the Jazz House Publications mechanisms at jazzhousepublications.com. There's a link there to click for the editing services. I can also be reached directly at editor at jazzhousepublications.com. And my author blog is SeamusKing.com. Lisa? What is Seamus's last name? Can you spell it for me? King, K-I-N-G. Oh, K-I-N-G. I think I have a poor connection today. And it's jazzhousepublications.com and editor at jazzhousepublications.com, correct? That's my work email. Happy to talk with you through that. Thank you. I just think this was great. This was real. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to have you, Lisa. Thank you. Always good to be here. And for those of you, it's S-E-A-M-U-S. Correct. S E A M U S. Good old okay. Irish name. That- yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Seamus. I just need to give out our prompt for next week is 100 word max of words of Thanksgiving. And next week we are going to have fun, fun, fun with another round robin. So come and join us and uh, bring your friends. And now we have responses to our prompt. The prompt this week was maximum of 60 words of hope. Deanna Noriega, hope. As a writer, I love to tell stories. Where I have trouble is sending my work out into the world. When I feel brave, I release my thoughts with a heart full of hope that you, my reader, will connect with what I share and my writing resonates within you. Come walk with me. Hear my life song. Abby, before I read my piece, let me just share with you all that my new book, Why Grandma Doesn't Know Me, is now available on BookCare. So you should be able to find it by searching for Why Grandma Doesn't Know Me on your favorite 
Bookshare app, Words of Hope. Poet Emily Dickinson says, hope is the thing with feathers. To me, this doesn't make sense, although I like Emily Dickinson's work. Hope isn't an object you hold in your hands. It's a feeling. During uncertain times, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Being a poet, I say hope is armor against despair. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, Seamus. This has just been fabulous. I could have spent another hour with you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you, Chanel. And I'm going to turn it over to Kathy. Be sure to visit writingworkswonders.com for these show notes, resources, and bonus content. You'll also find many opportunities to write and participate in Writing Works Wonders events. All opportunities to participate in our Zoom calls, contests, writing prompts, and open mic events are available through our Contact Us page. Just click Contact Us on the website. Writing Works Wonders weekly writing prompts are quick creativity boosters. Writers of all skill levels are enjoying them, and so are we. They're available on our website, and also you can sign up for them and receive them delivered to your inbox along with our Zoom alerts. Just visit writingworkswonders.com and click Contact Us. We want to encourage your writing success. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-647-0221. All donations go to the expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep our podcast running. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder of writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.